traffic coming from Watsonville. It starts at the Rockaway Junction. There's a crash right around Aptos, and that's slow all the way into SoCal and Live Oak. All right. For weather, it is 68 degrees out right now. We're going to see a low of 51 this evening and a high of 71 later today. And now it is time to head on over to Planet Watch. Welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, a look at the latest in research about Mars and what we might do on that planet if we ever go there. Plus some stories about exploring some of the least explored parts of our planet, deep in the caves of China. We'll talk with SETI Institute's Dr. J.R. Skoke in just a moment after we do some science news right here on Planet Watch. And there's a few announcements. We also have about events coming up if you are listening live in our Santa Cruz community. Yeah, well, let's go right to those announcements, and then we'll, we got Tommy with a story lined up for us. But uh, this coming week or so, we got a couple of uh, significant events around town here in Santa Cruz. Uh, this coming Thursday, October 25th at 7 p.m. at the Live Oak Grange over on 17th Avenue, there's going to be a special uh, presentation by a couple of researchers who are involved with the California Fourth Climate Assessment, Michael Loick and David Herbst. And again, that's this coming Thursday, October 25th at 7 p.m. at the Live Oak Grange. And then... Um, a little over a week from today, actually, uh, Monday, October 29th, uh, there's going to be a big rally in support of the finally getting to court of the Our Children's Trust lawsuit against the federal government for not protecting the climate and decency of future planet rights of the young people of the world. This Our Children's Trust is a really significant lawsuit, and it's finally hitting the court on Monday, October 29th, and we're having a solidarity rally over at the uh, Santa Cruz County Courthouse at uh, Ocean and Water uh, from 3 to 6 p.m. on Monday, October 29th. Nice. Some great local stuff going on, and hopefully wherever you're listening, whether it is in Columbus, Ohio, or Carborough, North Carolina, you are able to educate yourself more about what's happening with our planet hey uh, rachel yeah. <laughs> one last thing uh after that one the live oak grange on thursday there's another event over at cabrillo you can do them both cabrillo college our local community college there's going to be an astronaut talking as part of a bigger event that is being uh, sponsored and promoted by the uh, ARRL, America Re Radio Relay League, the ham radio folks. And uh, the astronaut's name is Sheffield. I'm not sure exactly what he's talking about, but it's co-sponsored by the Astronomy Department at Cabrillo College. So that's at 9 p.m. at the Samper Theater, the new one of the new theaters at Cabrillo. So, hey, you could actually dovetail that with the 7 o'clock event over at the Live Oak Grange. And if you are new to Planet Watch, you can see all of our 
earlier programs and hear them at planetwatchradio.com. And there you can subscribe to our podcast. So if you want to get future shows, it will be automatically delivered to your device. That's planetwatchradio.com. We're also on Facebook, so check us out there. We're going to have a couple of short stories for you, and then we're going to go to that interview. Tommy, what do you got for us today? Well, in past shows, we've discussed the impact of human light pollution in urban areas and what the effect is that it has on the starry night sky. A new plan by Chinese scientists to create an artificial moon could bring this obstruction to a new level. The fake celestial body is essentially a satellite covered in a reflective coating. The proposal is to launch the first satellite in 2020 with more planned in the future. The illumination area could expand to about 50 miles, and the team estimates that it could be eight times more luminous than the actual moon. The head of the project, Wu Chunfeng, told China Daily that the expected brightness in the eyes of humans is around one-fifth of a normal streetlight, and could save China $173 million annually on electricity costs. Wu also claimed the satellite's accuracy and intensity could be controlled and even used in emergency situations, such as natural disasters. With p plans to possibly launch three more of these glowing satellites by 2022, more testing is needed to assess the impact they could have on the environment. Wu told the Daily they plan to conduct, conduct these tests in, in the uninhabited desert, but I would like to point out there are animals out in that desert, which will still be disturbing. It does raise some huge issues about who gets to control the light patterns in the sky and how that might affect people's ability to see the stars. Yeah, and of course we had a show uh, back in the spring, uh, the International Dark Sky Association. You should check out their website, darksky.org. We have a local chapter in Santa Cruz and we're quite active. And uh, well, needless to say, uh, this <laughs> new development is causing considerable consternation among dark sky advocates uh you know i pity anybody who would have to live in i think it's chengdu is the city where they're planning to deploy this thing but there are also interesting technical questions about well how do they do the only way it's going to work is to put it out there at almost twenty-three thousand miles in geosynchronous orbit which is way out there which means it's a really huge thing and uh you, you kind of wonder is there going to be stray light polluting surrounding areas over a broad region <laughs> and um well uh, here's another one for you the thing is useless when it's cloudy i mean you know you're trying to light up the ground at night and save a lot of electricity on street lights and stuff but when it's cloudy you don't need the damn thing it's up there beaming light down onto the tops of the clouds so anyway it seems kind of insane to me but well anyway. there are, there are some light that the moon creates on clouds but that's a whole other story it does kind of ruin the romance of a <laughs> moonlit night when it's an artificial moon plus in china you have to think about smog mm, yes indeed well to be continued we'll find out more as that one develops um a new study uh, is showing that uh, in the last ice age more than 300 species have gone extinct including mammoths woolly rhinos and Phycloscenes, which I'm not even sure what that is, but something has gone extinct. Um, a quarter of the remaining 5,500 species are endangered thanks to one species, us. A sobering new study by Matt Davis of Aarhus University throws these losses into stark relief. He estimated how long it would take for mammals to evolve enough new species to replace the ones that we have eradicated. And his most realistic answer is somewhere from 3 million to 9 million years. That's at least 10 times as long as 
humans have existed as a species. And he says, the goal for conservation should be to get the most bang for our very limited buck. And he says, in all honesty, the level of extinctions will probably get worse before it gets better. But he's hoping his research will help guide the kinds of decisions around which types of animals to protect based on how long their evolutionary tree is, how big the branch, instead of a little twig, if it's only been around for 9,000 years, as opposed to something that's been around for 30 million. So interesting way of looking at conservation from a different lens of evolutionary history. And I believe that is the main wrap-up of our science stories for now. Yeah, we'll have some stuff at the end of the show about sky news, etc. And a comet, so you have to stay tuned, because I heard <laughs> there is one coming, maybe not tomorrow, but soon, um, that we'll be able to see with our bare eyes. Well, today on the program, we have Dr. J.R. Skoke. He is with the SETI Institute, uh, which is associated with NASA, next to NASA, used to be part of NASA. And he is one of their Mars researchers. We've had a Mars researcher on this show in the past, Carol Stoker, who introduced us to you. And as I understand it, um, you just came from sort of a conference on Mars researchers where you were talking about what's new and exciting and what you're going to be doing with the rover. So let's start there, and then maybe we can work our way backwards and forwards and talk about your cave exploration as well. A lot to talk about here, but let's start with the red planet. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I was just at the Mars 2020 landing site selection meeting. So um, for the, the next big rover that's going to go to Mars is going to go launching in Mars 2020, and they're waiting for students to actually name the actual robot, but for now we're just calling it Mars and the year it's going. So it's Mars 2020 rover, and it's the... Um, kind of the continuation of this long-standing journey to search for life on Mars. Um, and the, the story of life on Mars has really uh, animated the discussion of both public and science for Mars over the last several centuries. Um, so since the late uh, 1800s, uh, Percival Lowell, he was like one of the first American astronomers to really get into Mars observations in the late 1800s. And um, he would map every two years as Mars would get close. And he was the first one to call um, what were uh, channels that were kind of observed when the Mars came close in the telescope as uh, canals. So that canals has such a human um, connotation as human large-scale engineering. And this idea that there were civilizations on Mars uh, building cities, possibly moving water from the well-mapped uh, poles to dying cities, uh, that was kind of like a theme behind the War of the Worlds um, publication by H.G. Wells. And this idea that there was like a, a possibly a civilization on Mars and life there animated both public and scientific thoughts throughout the early exploration over the, even the 20th century. Oh, certainly the idea of Martians, um, mm -hmm. little green men, right? I mean, we immediately think of that when we hear the word Martian. Um, and it's been studied, I study media studies, so the War of the Worlds is another cultural moment where we people became terrified by a dramatization of a play on the radio that they thought was real. And some people, not everyone. Uh, so it's captured our imagination mostly because of what we don't know about it or what we think we know, which turned out to be quite wrong. So you're still looking for life there, mm -hmm. but you're not really looking for current life, right? Um, not uh, on the surface anymore. So in the 1970s, we sent the Viking mission, which was the first robot to actually go to the surface. And there we were actually looking for living life on Mars today. We had a little experiment that took some soil, added some nutrients, and wanted to like watch 
biology happen. And even though the, the results were a little controversial, the major idea is that there was no life on the surface of Mars today. And after like 100 years of looking for this life on Mars today, that ended it, and it really stopped. That was like the last time we went to Mars for like 20 years, from the mid-70s until the mid-90s. And then um, we were able to get some evidence that maybe, you know, there is no life on Mars today, but there may have been life long ago, billions of years ago on Mars, that when Mars was wetter and warmer and much more habitable, that life may have been there and that we can go and find the surface today, um, go on finding the surface. So we found uh, meteorites that actually fell or blasted off of Mars millions of years ago, fell to Earth and saw some traces of what could have been life. And that spurred on the new kind of golden age of searching for life on Mars. But we're a bit too uh, shy after that failure to say that. So that's why we went through this whole follow the water. You know, on Earth, wherever there's water, there's life. And so on Mars, we wanted to find where water could be. So through the mid-90s and early 2000s, we sent rovers, we sent um, landers, we sent uh, orbiters to kind of map all the places on water on Mars. And that's why for the last 20 years, if you hear Mars in the news, it's usually because we found water there. We found water again and again and again. Evidence of water, not actual water. water. Um, actual, like, water as in ice. There's, like, so that was one of the things. So we found not only evidence of ancient outflow channels, uh, um, but we saw uh, ancient glacier deposits as well as massive um, ice capsule water. And there was just a recent discovery by Europe a couple of months ago that found possibly uh, modern lakes of water near the South Pole buried under a few kilometers underneath the surface. So there could be water within the near surface, both in kind of briny but still liquid form where life could possibly be. So is there technically possible for them to have the rover go to one of these pieces of ice or water on Mars, um, capsulize it and blast it back to Earth so we can actually have an actual sample back here. Yes, yeah, so we um, so the whole point of this new mission is to bring back the first ever samples of Mars. Uh, we have lots of pieces of Mars from impacts from uh, meteorites, but they are very specific to there's like only the youngest, most strongest rocks uh, will make survive that journey, and they're all mostly really young. So we want to go and actually pick what rocks we want and bring them back. Uh, we're probably not going to go to a place that has modern ice. Uh, we don't think that that's the best place for. Um, keeping these fossils right now. And we think the best places for, if life exists on Mars today, which some people think it is, it would be several kilometers below the surface where we think modern water could be. And that's too hard to access and sample at this point. So we're looking for ancient uh, samples of life that we can actually bring back. I'm looking at a globe you brought in and it's not a globe of Earth because, well, the continents don't look right. That's Mars. I know that our radio audience can't see it at the moment unless we figure out how to get our Facebook working. But from what I'm seeing, there's a blue cap on the top that looks like the Pacific Ocean. What is that? <laughs> so that is the northern lowlands. So the blue just means it's a lower elevation. Oh, okay. Uh, so when Mars, if Mars ever, there's a big debate in science still whether or not um, the north part could have been a global ocean at times, depending on how much water um, was active on Mars. There's some evidence. Every couple of years we see a new evidence. A new study shows there, there was ocean um, kind of shorelines going around it. Then other people say, oh, there was never enough water. And so the jury's still on whether or not there was a half of the globe of Mars covered by water at one point, or if it was just kind of smaller lakes and ice pieces. So that's still a ongoing debate. But it's just a, a place where half the, the northern half of Mars is several kilometers lower than the much older surface on the southern half. So that's what the a global dichotomy, we call it, on Mars, where there's two parts that are kind of fundamentally different in age and uh, compositions. One of the things that's really relevant to us here on Earth, given that we're going through a major climactic change um, of our atmosphere, is what happened to Mars. Is it an analog to what could be happening on Earth at some point? 
how did it lose all of its water and its atmosphere? Uh, yeah, so Mars is much, much smaller than Earth, and which means it's a lot easier to cool. So uh, one of the best things about being on Earth is that's an active planet. We have a molten core that's causing our volcanic activity. It's causing our tectonic plates. All those things help create a really good land for farming, helps drive the ecological systems, and it also drives our uh, magnetosphere, a magnetic uh, field around the Earth that protects us from solar rays. And that allows our atmosphere to exist and be nice. On Mars, it would have cooled off around 4 billion years ago, where you lost this uh, molten... Uh, iron core that drives that magnetosphere. So it was kind of a unprotected um, atmosphere for much, much longer times. So we have evidence now from the MAVEN mission that just went to Mars over the last uh, couple years where we could actually watch the uh, solar wind kind of strip away particles of the atmosphere. And so, you know, a couple particles here and there over 4 billion years kind of went from a, a atmosphere that could handle an ocean, handle ice, to a nearly, you know, a very, very thin atmosphere that we have today. So that particular challenge is not really a big threat for Mars for, or for Earth for a few billion years until our uh, core is expected to cool and then we'll lose that and then we'll have the same kind of atmospheric loss that Mars had. Yeah, so we can relax. <laughs> for that one problem. <laughs> there's, there's other problems that we'll have to deal with. Right. Yeah, we've got warming to worry about rather than cooling, but it is an interesting thing that I only kind of relatively recently in my own life realized with Mars, it being smaller than the Earth. It, that means it has a higher surface area to volume ratio, which means that all the heat inside, such as the heat inside the Earth, um, is, on the Earth, that heat is still trapped inside and leaks out every now and then in geysers and volcanoes. And that used to happen on Mars, but because it's smaller and has a larger surface area relative to its volume, all that heat has leaked out already. And so plate tectonics has ground to a halt. If it ever happened. If it's still it ever a big debate whether there. or not that ever actually uh -huh. started. So it lost, um, well, the carbon on Mars... Uh, is locked in the atmosphere, basically. Or no, sorry, in, in the, the crust. In the yeah, crust. A yeah. lot of on carbon Venus, it's the opposite. It's carbon's locked in the atmosphere. On Mars, it's locked in the crust because there's no more pl plate tectonics, if there ever was, to cycle it between the atmosphere and the ground. So another little interesting sidelight. We were talking about life underneath the subterranean reserves of water, possibly on Mars. Um, I believe it's a fact, I think Carol or somebody told me this at NASA, um, that about half of the biomass on the Earth is actually microbes below the surface, like in the first kilometer yeah. of the Earth. Now, that's not so much because there's water down there. They just they just live off rocks. They've figured out how to live well, off rocks. Well, it's a lot of water. Water and rocks, all that energy. Okay. And the biggest difference is you have volume to go, right? Like So on Earth, all of life is on the very, very surface. So there's just not a lot of room on the surface of Earth, where if you go deep, you can not only have the entire area we have, but uh, integrate over a kilometer of depth. So there's just a massive volume of biomass in microbe form. And that's what we're looking for on Mars. So, um, you know, whether or not life ever was on the surface, that's still a very open question. But if life ever existed on the surface, it would definitely have permeated the entire kind of near-crustal aspect. And that's what this new mission, Mars 2020, is trying to do. We're having a strong debate of what type of area is best for preserving this evidence of life. Is it a hot spring deposit? Is it a delta deposit? Is it going to this ancient crust to try and find this life-bearing deep crust um, life? And so this mission, we, we spent a lot of time debating the the merits of those three different types of locations to figure out where we want to pick up a sample and then bring it back over the next few uh, decades. So how would this n new rover get at 
such life? Would it have a lot of deep trenching capability? Or No, we have very little ability to get very deep on Mars. That's incredibly hard. Uh, the next European mission is really focused on drilling, but even that would be like a meter, maybe a little more mm -hmm. than a meter. This rover is mostly going to pick up surface samples. So it is looking for that preserved evidence of life. So um, hot spring deposits. Uh, there's a silica center that comes from hot springs. It's if you ever go to uh, Iceland or Yellowstone, there's this white stuff that comes out of geysers, and that is silica center, and it's incredibly great at preserving, fossilizing, any kind of bacteria was there. So hot springs are considered a great place to kind of allow life to come out of the deep crust and then be preserved on the surface we can find. So this is one of my main researches now is I spend summers in Iceland to figure out how to find life with robots in these hot spring deposits so we can go to Mars to do that. So that's one option, uh, deltas. So if you look for fossils on Earth, you want to find ancient rivers where they would, um, like dinosaurs would fall in and then they would be sedimentized with clays and um, preserved. And so going to deltas on Mars where once rivers created deltas is another place we're looking at. So that and also deep crust, trying to understand how deep crustal where life may have been could have been preserved. So those are the areas we're debating for Mars 2020. So this will pick up um, some samples from any of those places that we finally decide. So we debated over the last week and the higher ups at NASA will decide very soon which of those environments we'll explore. The mission will then pick up um, a few dozen samples of the different rocks of Mars and then we'll cache it in a little box. And then after we cache it, we will decide to send the next mission to Mars, which will actually land on the surface of Mars and pick up this cache. It will then hopefully turn the atmosphere of Mars into rocket fuel in order to launch this rock, uh, the samples of rocks into orbit around Mars, where it's pretty stable and can stay there for years and years and years. And then finally, if we still want to bring the samples back and we got the money, the next mission will go to Mars, rendezvous with these rocks, and then launch that back to Earth so we can actually study. It just shows you how complicated all this is um, to do. Three yeah. different missions just to get a rock yeah. back Sweet. from another planet. If you just joined us here on Planet Watch, I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan, and we're talking with Dr. J.R. Skoke. He is with SETI Institute and uh, just came from a conference. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall in that room of a bunch of scientists arguing about or discussing um, what to do <laughs> next exactly. on Mars. By the way, if you have Dialoguing. a question or a comment uh, for us, you can... Uh, Email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com or you can go to Facebook and just enter Planet Watch Radio. So Tommy's scanning the screen there to get your input. Now, if you're a buff of movies and you remember the movie Contact, I believe SETI had its moment in Hollywood during that time where Jodie Foster character um, was, you know, listening for radio waves out there in the universe and uh, found some <laughs> that were not were not explainable in any other way and and you'll have to go see the rest of the movie but SETI you know has been around for a while both of you worked for SETI it's it's a scientific operation that's trying to find life out there in the universe stands for search for extraterrestrial <coughs> intelligence by the way and the Jodie Foster character was modeled after a, a lady that I knew when I worked there Jill Tarter famous radio astronomer who's kind of an expert on you know the search for life out there and so the question always was for me, like, what would it mean if we found life, even microbial life on Mars? What would it mean for us as humans? What would it help us understand in terms of evolution? Yeah, and so would we be related to those microbes somehow genetically? 
So that going back to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, like that is the overarching goal of what the SETI Institute is about. Uh, but you know, that's a very binary question. Do we hear that or not? And so you can either spend your life listening or you have to find a different strategy to search for it. And so one of the ways that we search for it is to what's called the Drake Equation, uh, developed by Frank Drake, another one of the early founders of the SETI Institute. It's a kind of equation that will estimate the probability of finding intelligence life in our solar system. So the idea is you take the number of uh, stars in our galaxy, multiply by the number of planets per star, multiply by the number of habitable um, planets, by the number of ones that actually have life, times by the number of ones that have in, like intelligence during our, our reign. And so um, SETI has their kind of business plan, if you will, is to attack each number of that to get estimates. So we have people working on the Kepler mission to understand how many exoplanets there are, so we can understand how many planets in our solar system. Uh, my job is to understand how many planets in our solar system happen to have evidence of life. We have one. If we find microbes on Mars, now we know we can have two, and it doubles the probability of finding intelligence in our solar in our galaxy. So it changes the rest of the Drake equation just yeah. because we have a two data point yeah. right now. We it only doubles have that one. chance. Yeah. So it, it really shows that the chances of life being out there is far more likely if it goes from one to a multiple. And then all the, you know, we get a lot better constraint over what this is like. Uh, so not only do we want to know that Mars had life, but we want to know what that life was like. Was it is it just like life that we have? Does it, you know, based on DNA? Does it like water and nutrients the way that our life does? All of that will help us understand both um, what life on Mars was like, but also life's possibilities, and will help us refine the search further throughout our solar system and beyond uh, on where life could be. We, you know, even as kids, we always try to imagine what, you know, life might have evolved like on other planets. And when you start thinking about how unusual it is that only one species on this one planet actually got to the point where it had the technology to communicate elsewhere at all. Um, it seems to me to be infinitesimal as far as that goes, but that's just working with the one data point that we know. Um, and what makes people at SETI think that they would find another civilization that got this far, if you want to call it far, um, into technology that they could actually communicate outward beyond their own planet? It really goes back just to numbers, right? Like, uh, you know, there are billions and billions of uh, stars through our galaxy, many, many galaxies beyond. And, um, you know, all, and now we're finding with Kepler so many planets just like Earth. So if, if it's possible for the chemistry for that creates us is kind of standard. So when you look at life on Earth, uh, life is incredibly common. Like the moment that Earth became possible for life as we know it, life happened. It wasn't like the conditions were there for most of history and then it just happened to happen. It's been life as far as microbes is very, very easy. And then in certain conditions, it becomes complex. And then complexity does it things until we have our specific history. So um, the hope is that if you have that really, really like a hard odds to create intelligent life and then give it billions of chances to do it, then you might get it again. So life will find mm -hmm. a way. And then no there's the what. multiple, right? Like we, in just a few centuries from getting our first technologies to where we are now, we can now go to multiple planets. And so if any species is like another few thousand years more advanced than us, they might not be in just that one planet. They might be all throughout the galaxy. And so that is one of the big questions is like, all you need is to have that one spark happen again. And then that might multiply the number of chances where we can hear from them. I always wonder why haven't they found us yet if they're more advanced than we are and um, if they do find us, maybe they just will exterminate us immediately because they want our planet. That's the fear. I remember one guy talking about, what makes you think they're going to be friendly? <laughs> I mean, if they're microbes, I'm okay with that, but beyond microbes, a little yeah, bit could, frightening. They could find us pretty boring. 
<laughs> yeah, it might be that with the billions of planets that we're finding, right? Like our planet's not that special every time we look. So they probably have many Earth-like planets to get to before they find us on the edge of the solar system or edge of the galaxy where we are. Mm -hmm. So, and a lot of these exoplanets that are they're finding in the Goldilocks range are so far from us that, given our current technology, we couldn't get there while still being alive. We'd have to have generations born on a spaceship, you know, or in cryogenic suspension as 2001: A Space Odyssey showed them you know, to get there at all. So we have to look from afar right now, I suppose. For now. And that's, uh, you know, starting that journey now is that's why it's so important, right? Every year we wait, it's going to be even farther. So learning to, um, you know, I, I work hard on the missions to get to space as well as trying to get humans uh, beyond Earth. How do we build the infrastructure? How do we build the economics? How do we push humans beyond Earth to begin that journey of creating a sustainable space presence? You know, getting to the next Earth-like planet's really hard, but getting off of Earth for good and uh, getting the technology to make that sustainable to start that journey now is definitely within our lifespans. Getting off of Earth for good. You s I got stuck on that statement. That, that makes me feel like, who's abandoning us? Are <laughs> you going off to live in space because you gave up on our planet? Is there something immoral about that stance that we should have a planet B? I always raise this because it feels like we better solve this one. It might be the only one actually has food on it, you know, that we yeah. can grow. You know, humans are, we're explorers, right? Like the fact we, we could migrate out of Africa as a species and not give up on that continent. We can travel from Europe to America without giving up on Europe. We are a very diverse and busy species that can handle multiple challenges and multiple objectives at once. And so I see space as an addition to this journey rather than a, um, you know, a like a final leaving of Earth. So multitasking, yeah, I guess. Yeah, we're good at that. Well, and we better get better at it because we just got told by the IPCC that we might have 30 years to figure out how to completely retool our economies and globally get off of fossil fuels. So if we can go to Mars, I suppose we could do that. Yeah. We better get on it. <laughs> I think, you know, going to Mars is such a, a very concrete set of um, challenges and things we need to survive um, to make that work. And I think just forcing that uh, kind of thinking process and how do we survive that will just create lots of other technologies that will solve some, but probably not all, of the challenges that we're facing here. Um, as you saw, like the... the um, the climate change, you know, it was such a, a, a stark reminder that we have to completely change everything we're doing. It's not going to be a little here. It's not going to be a little there. It's completely retooling the way we do stuff. And, you know, going to Mars is going to also require a completely retooling of how we live, how we work, how we innovate. And so I see a lot of parallels between just uh, creating a civilization of innovation to just solve problems faster than they arise. So I see that as like, you know, two sides of the, two sides of the same coin of innovating our way to survival. So you get some cross-fertilization uh, between approaches uh, dealing with, you know, other planets and this planet. Yeah. And uh, Which brings me to something you brought up when we were talking earlier before the show is um, you're me messing around with technology that would turn certain geology that's present here on Earth and also present on Mars into textiles and things like that. So I'm curious what applications you know, mining things here that we're not yet using for making things into things like yeah. that we use every day. So talk about that a little bit. So um, my main research is a, a geologist on Mars. So I understand through satellites and rovers and all that what rocks are there. Um, so one of the main ones on Mars is basaltic rock. I have a piece here I picked up in Antarctica from a volcano there a few years ago. Take, uh, take a picture. And this comes from, this is the same rock that makes up Hawaii, it makes up Iceland, it covers the ocean floors. Uh, it covers the near side of the moon, all the lunar mare that makes it dark um, is the same rock there. 
And it's very, very common on all the planets. It's one of the most common materials in our solar system. And it's also incredibly versatile and kind of underused. So we can actually churn it and melt it down and pull it into threads and fibers. So I have here uh, this kind of golden color rope and uh, fabrics all made from melted basalt. So these are all things that could be made from melting down a rock. And so Made of Mars is working on, uh, the company's called Made of Mars, and um, right now we're launching a Kickstarter and starting to get the design element going to put in this material more processes. So we have uh, laptop cases, wallets, just kind of showing where we can highlight these materials and um, you know see what we can make out of it. And so, you know, all, all materials um, are, have trade-offs. You know, every time we make something out of cotton or wool that's competing for cropland, it's causing um, environmental damage here and there. Uh, every time we use plastics or polyesters, like that's taking fossil fuels and uh, petrochemical industries. So a lot of this is trying to figure out what materials can we uh, use to take away some of the pressure on our modern materials, uh, help for more sustainability while also building the technology to get to Mars. And so if we get to Mars, the more that we can make out of this, the easier it is to build locally, build from what's there. Uh, we can also do it on the moon, we can do it in the middle of space with asteroids and uh, um, uh, from that aspect. And if we can do it on Earth, you know, we have a lot of basaltic rockets on all the continents. Um, it just will hopefully help us build this uh, technology for the future, as well as take away some of the pressure from other materials. Uh, for example, you know, this is a natural rock. So if it ever, like, if you want to throw it away and it ends up being washed into the ocean, it's going to just fall to the bottom of the ocean like all the rivers and uh, normal processes work with rocks. It's not going to float in the ocean and causing our, you know, current plastic nightmare in the oceans the way that material is. So, and if you ever throw it in a landfill, like a landfill of, of basalt, you know, byproducts is just a pile of rocks, and that's kind of what nature is to some degree. So it's also you're recyclable. showing things people can't see yeah. here. So maybe Joe can narrate what we're looking at. <laughs> Um, because it's really hard to believe that what I'm looking at is made out of rock. Yes, I have pictures on madeofmars.com uh, if you want to go there. But if you want, do you want to describe it? I'm sure I see something different than you saw. Let's you. Basalt textiles. It. Yeah, there's a, a kind of a band that looks like almost, uh, well, there's some rope. <laughs> and then there's this band, which uh, looks like it could be... Uh, um, it's like a, a woven, harness or a woven belt. What, 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 what yeah. would you use this for? Yeah. So this one is to like insulate pipes right now. So that's what this particular weave is for. But it's these fibers, which are the volcanic rocks. So when a, if you see a big fire fountain that happens like in Hawaii over this past summer, it's going to, some of the lava is going to be pulled into little threads and it's called Pele's hair when you find it in Hawaii naturally. This is kind of industrialized Pele's hairs that creates fibers from this rock. And from a fiber, we can create textiles. And from textiles, we can create all sorts of things. This is already used as like a car composite. It's used in um, tripods and kind of things where you might want carbon fiber, but don't want to pay that premium price. And does so. it melt like plastic? It melt like, melts like rocks, so you have to get, you know, it melts at about 1,200 degrees Celsius. So um, it's one of the, it's used right now a lot in high temperature applications, fireproof blankets, uh, things where it keeps its strength up to like 600 degrees Celsius, so pretty, pretty hot. So it's good for wrapping really hot pipes or things yeah. like that. Weird. I mean, I've been in Hawaii and seen that Pele's hair, and it's just like glass. It's like fiberglass. Yeah, so this is um, this one is it's a bit more industrial uh, strength, so it's able to stay a lot more flexible, and when you weave it together, it keeps its strength a lot better than the natural glass. And does it take a lot of 
uh, energy to make. I was it just going to ask that. Yeah, you definitely have to heat it up to um, melting temperature, which is the temperature of a volcano. Uh, and, you know, energy in some places when you have wind power, solar, hydropower, it's a lot more green than if you use coal and other natural gas. So um, it definitely does require energy, but almost, you know, if we, any other material also, like petrochemicals, that requires, you know, not only fossil fuels to make it, but to process it. Um, same thing with cottons. It uses a massive amount of water and cropland. So, um, you know, it's definitely not the perfect material, but there is no perfect material. So it's just another way to take away pressure from some of the other uh, consequences we have. And because, you know, it's just a rock, we can keep remelting it. So it's pretty recyclable to um, create that pipeline. Also, there's a lot of work being done, especially around this Bay Area, for the future of asteroid mining. Like, that sounds like it's really far off, but there's already companies that are beginning to figure out the um, financial plans, and we need some legal aspects to make it so we can actually mine resources from asteroids. And the idea is that we can go up, pick our asteroids, favorite ones we want, bring them around Earth orbit, and start mining there. And you know, again, this sounds crazy and fantastical, but in a few decades, like that technology could be here. And this material is very common on a lot, about 17% of all asteroids we know are made of basalt. And so if we can mine those and actually bring that material to Earth, we can have a lot of material comforts with no environmental degradation. Oh, I have a question going back to the life conversation, life on other planets. Um, but I think I've heard Elon Musk talk about that before, going to asteroids and mining them. Um, so Linda Marin just asked a question. Does our version of science base its assumption of life on water and DNA? Does that assumption make it likely that we might overlook some other form of life? Yes, so there is many, many science conferences that go back and forth and back and forth on what actually life is. And um, the general idea is that we don't assume that water and DNA is the only way to do life, but it's by far the most easy for us to understand and search for. Mm -hmm. um, so when we go to Mars and actually search for life, we have to look for something specific. So we have whatever we're looking for, we have to build an instrument that specifically finds this thing, whether it's a certain type of molecule, it's a certain environment, we have to be very specific, we search for it. So we can pretty easily search for the things that we know to look for. So we decide what we're looking for, build the instrument, to Mars and look for that. Um, we are very worried about not finding the life that we're not expecting to find. And uh, we have Wait, never... Can you, can you repeat that? <laughs> we're very worried about finding the life that we don't know like what it looks like. Right? Like that's the, the point there is um, if, you know, if there's life that doesn't need water, if there's life that doesn't work on DNA, what does it look like? You know, there, that's a big question. We go to a lot of these SETI conferences of maybe there's, you know, intelligent life that's everywhere in our universe all around us, but it's just acting in a way that we cannot recognize as alive. So what if it was based on, you know, sulfur, sulfuric yeah. acid instead of carbon? Yeah. Like there's a lot of talk about the, like the Gaia hypothesis on Earth where even the Earth as a planet is a living, breathing system and we're just like bits of cells in a planetary life, you know, a planet-sized life. So that's like some of the thing that we talk about. Like, is, is that actually what we consider a living thing? So maybe we need to search for living planets that are acting like life rather than looking for what we think is like cells and human-like things. Um, so yeah, so we can search for the things we know, which is why there's a big bias on DNA and water base, because that's what we know we can search for. There's a lot of theoretical work to look for other types of life and understand what the limits are, but just as a practical sense, they're a lot harder to build a system to search for it. Right. But we are definitely aware of it. Yeah, you know, um, let's see. We need to have a little bit of time for you to talk about caving, because <laughs> uh, this guy, J.R., 
is really into caving. And it turns out I was in Hawaii uh, just before uh, one of our shows last summer telling you tales of staying for a couple of nights on a huge lava field down near South Point of Hawaii. And it turned it was in the home of a guy who <laughs> JR knows. Peter Boston, who's a wonderful photographer mm -hmm. of caves. He does world-class cave photography. But anyway... He used to uh, live around here. A lot of... Um, this whole Santa Cruz County is full of some of the best sea caves in California. And if you look at the maps of those, he's a, a prodigious mapper of the sea caves of Santa Cruz area. Uh, okay. So he used to live here and work around and, and... That's probably how he knows my friend who actually was hosting us. Uh, he was house-sitting for Peter. that He and his wife were off somewhere. But um, And also, I want to hear about your caving in China. Mm -hmm. and and I, I guess a cave is a cave, but uh, some of them have glowworms in them. And, some are bigger uh, than know. others, and a lot of them are un, unexplored territory. They're kind of the last yeah, frontier, like the first, except for the deep sea, right? Yeah. So tell us about what you've first mapped. Descent, first descent into yeah. some caves. There's, there's a bit of correlation between, like, you know, this historic, uh, heroic side of mountaineering, like, you know, the Everest expeditions and those big mountain trips, and then um, much less glamorous is caves. Uh, you know, you do it in the dark, it's harder to get that hero photo, but it's incredibly, um, uh, for me, I find it almost more compelling, which is you know why I do it. We knew what the tallest mountain is in the world like years and years before we ever climbed it. Uh, whereas we will not know what the deepest cave is. We will not know what the biggest cave is. We will not know what the uh, most beautiful cave is until humans actually stand there and find it. So even today, like... Um, yeah, I, I've you know, I've made, kept made, I've did a lot of my early caving in uh, southeast of the U.S., Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia, learning all the skills, and then taking that to mapping Hawaiian caves, and then eventually to the big caves in China, and so. Um, uh, a lot of the cave exploration ethics started in America and Europe. So those caves are amazing, but they've been largely explored. Uh, China, especially the southern half of China, is almost all uh, karst terrain, which is the type of rock that caves form. And because it's very thick and it's just so wet down there, it has some of the largest cave rooms and cave systems in the world. And um, for the most part, the, the local Chinese caving um, culture is not very well developed. So there's still so much that have been... Um, waiting just to still uh, map. Like any place that humans could easily walk to, uh, they've been explored. So the, the locals have been using them for uh, mining saltpeter to make fireworks, for gunpowder. They've used it for uh, protection. Any place you could possibly walk, even places that are really hard for us to walk to, we find human artifacts and that. But there are some places where you need very technical rope skills to get down very tight chambers, to get to these places that unless you have many kilometers of ropes and all the right harnesses, you can't get to. And so that's where we can go and uh, be the first humans to ever see. So a lot of the caves I've looked at are near the city of Chongqing, kind of in the central uh, west of China, in the hills there, and just um, many, many kilometers that were all, you know, a team of American and British in that area have been going back for the last decade to every year we add a few more kilometers of newly mapped terrain just to understand what's there. Uh, over the last few years, um, it's actually because of the mapping that we've done, uh, it's become a UNESCO heritage site. So the caves were found to be so amazing that it became a kind of a protected park and even a bit of a, a little bit of a tourist zone to um, protect these caves from exploitation, from mining, from other kind of things that might damage it. So not only are we just you know, mapping to see amazing caves and passages and what minerals are there. But it's also kind of getting to know what these wonders are so that way we know what we're actually protecting. Um, and yeah, getting to see this, this aspect of the world that you never know until you actually put your, the effort to put your footprints there. Are there some parallels to exploring Mars where you don't want to contaminate the depths of a cave with microbes if you're going to study any kind of microbes that might be found in this rather hostile environment? 
Yeah, I've worked on a few missions of NASA just recently. I worked with uh, Carol Stoker up in um, the lava beds of California. We put a rover in there to understand if we actually get a rover to Mars and put it in a lava tube, like, how do we do it? Um, and anything that touches the surface of Mars, we work really hard to decontaminate it. It goes through all these procedures of planetary protection uh, regulations to make sure that as few of microbes from Earth go there as possible. So that way, if we find life there, we're finding actual Mars life and not Earth life. So that's an incredibly important thing, especially in um, caves, because a lot of the surface of Mars is so radiated from the sun that we think that any kind of living thing there might be destroyed from that radiation, where caves like provide protection from that. So it is possible, even if it's a little unlikely for other reasons, uh, that if life near the surface of Mars could exist, caves is a place where you might have this radiation protection to find cells. Martian bats? Um, that might be hard. The <laughs> atmosphere is very thin, so you need good aerodynamics. Martian microbes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, we're back to microbes again. Not as sexy as bats. Or we don't. We want to set Martian. the bar low so that way we can exceed it. <laughs> yes, I, I totally understand that. And you also um, probably have to decontaminate when you bring anything back from Mars. So if we do have that capsule that comes back, um, there could be some microbe that multiplies really well on Earth that might harm us. We don't know. Yeah, so definitely uh, you know, planetary protection both there and back is an incredibly important part of our process. Uh, if we do bring it back, we still have a number of years, probably at least 10 to 15, probably more. So we have a little time to consider that. Uh, a lot of work's already done by the best laboratory specialists. You know, even on Earth, we have all these um, containment procedures. So like, we'll probably treat it like the most uh, worst case of Ebola that you can imagine as far as like making sure it's capsulated and protected and only people through many layers of protection actually work with it and analyze it. So we'll definitely go through those protections to make sure, you know, again, we'd want to make sure that no life from Earth uh, gets into it. So that's what we're seeing when we go through all the effort to bring these samples. So uh, can, keeping, it uh, keeping it, you know, as pure as possible is the highest priority whenever we bring samples between worlds. What do they do, like superheat you or something if you, you personally are going into a cave and you're trying to not contaminate it? With? That's a big question, right? Because you, um, you can't really do that for a human. So humans are just dirty. Our microbes are everywhere. Um, and so there actually was a big issue over in America and around the world the last few years is uh, a thing called white nose where bats were dying across America because we were worried that um, this disease with fungus was like traveling between caves and causing a huge number of bats to die off. Uh, There's still debate on whether or not it was probably bat to bat transmission, but we wanted to make sure cavers, you know, going from cave to cave weren't spreading it. So we, even just for recreational caving around America, we had very strict uh, decontamination processes. So like all your, you know, we try to have like each cave have your own equipment if possible. If you can't do that, then try to like use bleach and this whole procedure to make sure we kill any effort of that. So even on the earth caving, we try to be really um, careful about spreading around microbes. And on you know Mars, uh, once we commit to having people there, we'll never be able to really be clean. We're just so dirty. So there's a lot of work now to try and confirm that Mars doesn't have life before we send the first people there. So there's a, a race to do that work before the first humans kind of make it null. You must have been watching very carefully the whole story of the kids that were evacuated from that cave and having been a caver uh, I wonder how you saw that uh, news story unfolding. It seems to fascinate the world, not just because there were lives at stake, but also because it seems so impossible to get mm -hmm. those kids out alive. It, yeah. But they did it. They did. I spent the, the longest I've ever spent underground in a row was about five days. And, I, you know, I knew I was going to spend five days in there, so I brought the food and the clothes and, like, has mentally prepared. And, like, they were there for, like, several weeks, right? And, like, just... 
that kind of unexpected, for me, the longest I spent unexpected is there's one trip I was supposed to spend 10 hours and I spent 36 hours. And just that kind of unexpected time underground was very uh, shocking to the system. And so I'm, I'm stunned at kind of the, how um, resilient the kids were, how good their um, coach was at keeping them calm and able to hand that psychologically. And then the work it took, like just the multiple dive, like cave diving is the craziest thing that humans probably do. It's just so many ways it can kill you and so many, and it just takes so much discipline. Um, it's just about as hard as like going to space, except you don't have all of NASA trying to keep you alive, right? You have like your own skills and a little bit of team. So that is just like cave diving in the best conditions is tough. And the fact that they were able to do that multiple times with multiple kids who never had experience and were weak and, um, you know, psychologically challenged from the um the trauma of that event it's it's really a miracle and just um you know really a testament to the skill uh, and practice and training of those divers how they're able to do that so it's just an amazing feature to, like that the whole world got to watch and we're so glad that it was about uh, almost as happy as the ending as you could wish for yeah, and certainly for cavers watching it had a significance that that went beyond most of our own watching of it well, this has been a really exciting conversation, and I wish you all the best in your search for life on Mars and elsewhere and uh, your caving adventures. We've been speaking with J.R. Skoke. He is a researcher at SETI Institute over the hill um, in Mountain View. And we just want to thank you so much for being with us here on Planet Watch and sharing your research with us today. And if you're interested in learning more about what I'm doing, madeofmars.com has a lot of the information. Happy, And if you can contact me through there, and I'm happy to answer any questions people have along the way madeofmars.com. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Yeah, that was great. And uh, it's all outlandish stuff, literally. The truth, <laughs> real, is, right? the truth is out there. It's really, really out there. Yeah. We're in an age where we can make outlandish things real. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really out there and harder to do than uh, on the earth uh, and most, in many, many cases. Um, well, hey, we're into the oddball stuff portion of the program here uh, for a few minutes before we wrap up. And the Sky News, uh, we promised you a comet, and we also promised you some other Sky News. You have that um, much power, you can produce a <laughs> comet. I'm, I'm impressed, Well, too. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Rachel was the first one who mentioned it. Um, but there's a meteor shower going on right now, and actually those are bits of a comet. In fact, they are bits of the famous Halley's Comet. It's the Orionid meteor shower that comes around every year at this time, uh, mid to late October. And or rather, we come around to it because what's going on is we're crossing the orbit of Halley's Comet. And the comet, you know, they call it a dirty snowball. It's a big chunk of ice with some bits of rock and dust in it. And that stuff gets strewn all along the whole path of the comet's orbit. And, you know, Halley's Comet is way off somewhere. It's not going to be back here till, you know, many, many years from now. But Every year we cross its orbit and there's all this stuff that we run across at, you know, 20 some odd miles per second. That's how fast we're going around the, the sun, you know, like 20 miles a second, you know, click, 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 frequent flyer miles. <laughs> and so we run into this stuff and it comes sparking into our atmosphere. And, you know, have you ever driven into a snowstorm at night with your high beams on and the snowflakes appear to fan out like the spokes of a wheel? Well, the, they're all coming towards you, but the perspective of parallel lines makes that sunburst or spokes of a wheel kind of pattern. Well, the meteors do that. As we're plowing through this stream of meteor or comet debris, the stuff comes towards us, but it appears to fan out from the constellation Orion. 
Now, other months we have different meteor showers. Like next month in November, we'll have the Leonids. They appear to fan out from the constellation Leo. And in December, one of the best meteor showers of the year, the Geminids. They appear to fan out from the constellation Gemini. Where they appear to come from depends on which direction in space the Earth is traveling. So right now we're trying, and you know, there was the famous Perseid shower back in August, everybody's favorite in the summertime. Um, so uh, if you go out, now this is not a real good year for the Orionids. Why? Because the moon, <laughs> we talked about fake moons earlier. Well, the real moon is almost full. And so it kind of washes out uh, all but the brighter, brightest uh, Orionid meteors. But you can see maybe... 20, 25 of them an hour, especially best after midnight. So keep an eye out for that. And, um, well, speaking of the moon, um, uh, here's a fundamental little fact, which I don't think we've ever actually gone over on this program. Uh, you know, there's confusion about the dark side of the moon and the back side of the moon. Well, you know, the dark side of the moon, it, it varies. Sometimes it's, you know, one side and sometimes it's the other side. But the back side of the moon... The moon really does face the Earth with one side all the way around. It takes about a month for the moon to get around the world, you know, 30 days or so. And it's like you imagine you're facing a friend of yours, okay? And you're walking around your friend in a circle. That, that friend is the Earth, okay? And that friend is spinning on his or her axis many times while you, you know, walk around. And you keep facing that friend. You never expose your backside <laughs> to that friend as you walk around that friend. Well, that's what the moon does with the earth. The moon always keeps the same side facing the earth. So it rotates once on its axis for every full month-long revolution. Uh, so anyway, uh, they call that a phase-locked situation. The moon's rotation and revolution are phase-locked. So, so there is a backside of the moon that we never see. In fact, we never had seen it until we sent rockets up there back when I was a kid <laughs> in the 60s. Nobody had ever set eyes on the backside of the moon. But there is a comet coming. Okay, now back to, okay, getting, getting <laughs> to, to sure really important stuff. Right, right. Yeah, there is a comet, a comet coming. I think it's the green comet. Uh, anyway, it's going to be uh, visible to the naked eye, and it's going to be a nice comet, uh, you know, a beautiful one <laughs> mean in, uh, in December. And, you know, I don't know the exact dates about when you'll be able to see it, but it'll be, you know, just before the holiday season. <laughs> and uh, so it'll be visible for quite a while, you know, quite a few days and even weeks uh, here in the Northern Hemisphere anyway. And, and is um, it named? Uh, I'm sure it is, but I didn't look that up yet. Uh, we'll we'll <laughs> get to that week. next week. Just to, we're doing the uh, <laughs> stay tuned for coming attractions. All right. And, well, we uh, yeah. want to thank you for tuning in once again to Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman along with Joe Jordan. Just keep an eye on the sky. And you can always find us at RadioPlanetWatch.com. That's where you can sign up for our podcast. Or PlanetWatchRadio.com. Either one. Thanks so much for listening.